Hello, and welcome to another episode of Horror 4H's favorite little spooky story corner, which I lovingly refer to as Strange Occurrences. I'm excited to bring this one to you, as it's the first new anything I've been able to do in four or five months, and it's the first episode of 2024. Feel free to send any feedback you have to horror4h gmail.com. That's horror, the number four, the letter H, at gmail.com. If you enjoy what you hear and you want to support the podcast, then please share it with anyone who you think might also enjoy it. And if you're feeling like going above and beyond and wish to contribute to the show financially, please head over to Patreon and look for Horror4H and donate whatever you're comfortable giving. And in that vein, a big thanks to Josh, Jack, and Brian for their past and continued support of Horror4H. It's incredibly appreciated. Also, if you happen to be a fan of odd and abstract art, I've been doing that since I was 9 or 10 and didn't even know it until recently. After some encouragement from friends, I've put more effort into my art and have several pieces for sale on an Etsy shop. So if you're interested in what it looks like and maybe would like to purchase any of the pieces, you can look up Squig Art on, X- on Etsy. That's S-Q-U-I-G-G Art on Etsy. All pieces are black ink on drawing paper, the larger pieces are 12 by 9 and are priced around $85 each, and the smaller pieces are about a quarter that size and around $20. Okay, enough of all that. Time to get into the meat and potatoes of it. As always, please remember that what you are about to hear is all fiction and created in my mind. None of it is real. Also, save for the theme which was written by myself, all other music heard in this episode is courtesy of Kevin MacLeod. This episode is not inspired by any particular piece of real-world oddities, but rather an amalgamation of several stories and legends. So sit back, have a hard time relaxing, and if you happen upon a strange clearing in the woods, maybe turn around and leave. If I were to say to you, Southern Indiana, what images would dance across your mind? Perhaps cornfields, soy fields, oil wells, factories, rivers, small rural communities, a larger metro area or two? A street festival in the fall with a fry-your-own-food booth. Drugs, alcohol, small-mindedness, but also kindness and niceness and a willingness to help someone in trouble. Honestly, probably the same sorts of things you'd imagine if I mentioned a mostly rural area of any state. Would you think of heavy forests? Perhaps. But for some people in southern Indiana, a forest would be their first thought. Well, maybe what's in the forest would be their first thought. Terrence Woods lie in southwestern Indiana. They have existed for countless millennia and have been a popular place for those living in and around the area to hunt for just as long. The woods are incredibly active and deer and other wildlife can be seen and found at most times of day in most times of the year. Even during winter, the woods appear to have more life in them than other similar forests. It was made a nature preserve in the late 1980s, which put an end to the hunting, at least the legal hunting, but the woods still have a larger network of trails enjoyed by a few thousand people a year, at least. However, there is much more of the wood that remains largely unexplored in recent times. With over a thousand acres, Terrence Woods is an incredibly large section of fairly dense forest, having undergrowth and old trees. Many of the trees aren't often found in that particular landscape, and tend to be found more often near rivers along the banks. While there is a large river and a few ponds and a small lake within the borders of Terrence Woods, it should not account for this large amount of a specific type of tree. Current theory is the water content of the ground stays higher than most other similarly typed areas due to the ground shape and swelling. It's thought to be a feature left over from the last great ice age in which glaciers pushed inward into the middle of the United States and ended relatively close to southern Illinois, Indiana. Whatever the cause of the odd tree type in the area, another well-known, at least to the locals, feature is much less easily explained. The Devil's Door, as it has become known, 
is a fairly nondescript area in the southernmost and fairly far eastern section of Terrence Woods. Earliest reports of the area come, unsurprisingly, from indigenous peoples who lived in, hunted in, and roamed through the area hundreds and thousands of years ago. Their stories were passed to colonizers when Europeans began to arrive in the area, and as was so often the case, though, their customs and beliefs and knowledge was not taken seriously at all. Which is why the first recorded incident regarding the Devil's Door was in late 1780, an expedition to the area in spring of 1780 led by Edgar Tanner. In documents from the time, the expedition went to the area to trap and hunt various animals, including deer, raccoons, muskrats, squirrels, and other game. Edgar Tanner led the expedition along with a few other men, Clarence Hogan, Arthur Arnoldson, Jonah Tannenberg, and Louis Corvo, a French explorer who'd been to the region before and served as their guide. The entries the men kept in their journals and maps show they entered from the east and from a northern section and made their way south. They left several times to ply some of the wares they'd garnered at nearby outposts and villages before returning. However, in late fall of that year, the weather changed suddenly and the men had to stay in a makeshift shelter deep in the southern part of the woods and wait out the storm. Jonah's journal was the first one to show that something was wrong. In it, he wrote at length of the noises he was hearing from the woods and how the rest of the group was brushing him off. According to him, he could hear periodically his name being called from deep within the woods. A little girl's cries, and perhaps most unsettling, at night he could hear footsteps just outside the shelter, but when he or anyone else would look, there would be no footprints, and with the snow they'd been having, any tracks would have been very visible shortly after being made. Still though, Jonah would not be the one to suffer the most. That fate would be left to Arthur Arnoldson. During one of the days when the weather had let up enough for the men to attempt to find food and get more wood, according to the entries of the other men, he wandered a bit further than he should have, and when he did not return by the agreed-upon time, the other men gathered together and sought after him. They found him several hundred feet from their enclosure in an area that was completely hidden until you were directly upon it. A small clearing that from the outside didn't break the tree line at all, and in the middle of it, no snow at all, along with two large trees with no branches save at the very top, and near the trees, staring intently between them, was Arthur. They called to him a few times before they realized he either could not hear them or was having some kind of an attack. Edgar wrote later in his journal, quote, His silence spoke volumes, but the loudest sound was soon to come. Being the leader, I felt it was my responsibility to ensure the safety of any men, and so I took upon myself to be the one to enter the clearing to retrieve poor Arthur. Before I made it even my own body length into the accursed area, I realized all sound had ceased. I could not even hear my own breath, heavy as it was, and were my compatriots still calling me, I could no longer hear them either. I remember not if I continued my calling to Arthur, but if I did, I could not hear it any more than I could hear the crunching of my feet in the snow, which was less in the clearing than in the woods surrounding it. This lack of sound was startling and unnatural. I could feel old scratch upon my neck, and feared turning round lest I be face to face with the devil himself. After what felt like days, I reached Arthur and placed my hand upon his shoulder. I was prepared for the man to jump, to cause a fright, but his actions instead scared me more deeply than I should like to admit. He turned, ever so slowly, round to face me. His first feature that caught me off guard was his smile. It was large, larger than it should have been. The corners of his mouth were cracked and split apart, and his cheeks had begun to follow, splitting and freezing. There were small tricklets of blood that had been frozen to his face, but what I saw next is what caused my courage to begin to fail. The man's eyes were inhuman. 
The colored parts of his eyes, which had been a dark brown, were almost now completely white, the same white as the snow around us. And the whites of his eyes were now bright red, and there were red lines running from the corner of his eyes as if he'd been weeping blood. I'm certain he could no longer see, yet he stared straight into my own eyes. His eyes pierced my soul. I have since been told by Louis that this is what happens when a man's eyes are not shielded from the cold well enough, that perhaps such extreme temperatures caused his eyes to dry out, for his blood to crack throughout their casing out into the world, but this does not explain how dearest Sarah, Sarah being his wife, it does not explain how nor why he would keep his eyes open so long, or how he would smile and remain so through such terrible pain as I am sure he suffered. I could have kept my spine then and there, Sarah, were that the end of the horrors. Even then my primary thought was how to save this man and return him to the shelter so we could warm him and keep breath in his lungs. But what I heard sent me. I am unproud and consider myself a craven coward for my actions, but I also credit those actions with returning to you someday soon, and I think had I not run, not only would my body never return to you, but my soul would never be mine again, and would have forever been given to Satan. What I heard next came from inside Arthur, but it was not his voice. From his gaping maw, with no movement, no way for him to create the sounds, I heard my name being called as if from deep underground and echoing off cave walls emanating up from beneath, as if hell itself were calling my name, inviting me to warmth and shelter when the outside world was full of cold and death. And I wanted to go forward, Sarah. I wanted to give in, but I could not. All my years of being a faithful Christian, and I knew what was calling me was evil. And so I turned and I ran. I did not look back. Once I escaped back through the tree line, I could hear them all screaming and following me, and we ran back to the shelter. End quote. According to the other journal entries that spoke on this incident, what Edgar said was correct. They all decided to pack up and flee further north, even given the harshness of the weather, rather than to continue to camp near the clearing. As a result, Jonah Tannenberg ended up losing his right foot and a few fingers to gangrene, and it is reported that Louis Corvo never spoke again and returned to France shortly after the expedition arrived to a more populated area. The group did not retrieve the majority of Arthur's belongings, so his journal is thought to have been lost to the elements. His remains were never located, and the general theory is that he and his remains fell victim to natural predators and were scattered before succumbing to decomposition. There are a number of theories given to explain this incident. One of the more popular ones is based on the description of how thin the men were when they finally returned that winter. They had each easily lost 30 pounds or more and had sunken eyes and brittle nails and were sickly for a long period. Because of how long they had been in the wilderness, alone and unable to obtain food, one prevalent theory is that they'd begun to starve, and through some means, either vote, drawing a straw, or perhaps a more nefarious methodology, they decided to kill and eat Arthur Arnoldson. Some theorized this explains why his belongings were not brought back, that they in fact buried him along with the majority of his possessions, including his journal, and that they had altered their own and concocted the story in an effort to shield themselves from criticism, shame, and the religious implications of resorting to cannibalism. Louis Corvo was known to speak a few languages of the indigenous tribes and had traded with them regularly, and so it is believed he knew of legends of the area and helped invent the story, and he feared the other men eventually revealing the truth, which is why he fled back to France, to avoid possible future prosecution. However, none of the men changed their stories, no deathbed confessions given, nothing to give credence to this theory. Another is that during a particularly traumatic event that the details were jumbled and that due to the problems with colonizers in the area, 
that the local tribes had taken the expedition as an incursion onto their land and killed Arthur in a gruesome manner, which looked to the group as some sort of demonic vision, and that it was a form of mass delirium and traumatic memories. Some claim that recent troubles in a few years prior regarding the Transylvania Purchase near the area, but further into what would become Kentucky, helped raise tensions in this area between colonizers and the indigenous peoples. However, there is no evidence for this theory either. As a sort of almost medium ground between these two theories is the belief that Arthur was in fact in the process of trying to find the courage to begin to kill and eat his companions, as he was being possessed or turning into, depending on what particular brand of the legend you ascribe to, a creature or spirit that exists in some indigenous people's lore, including the Cree, the Ojibwe, and other Algonquian-speaking tribes. I will not say the creature's name, as it is a common practice among the indigenous peoples of those areas that, should the name of certain creatures be spoken, they are summoned. And it is not my place, dear listener, to determine when speaking its name is allowed or not. However, it is noteworthy that this particular entity is almost exclusively found in tribes that populated areas much further north than Terence Woods, so even if you believe the stories of these creatures, they do not often appear in the region mentioned. The expedition story was passed through many camps, and as a result, many other groups avoided that area intently for several decades. The next recorded incident in that area takes place in 1837. Again, this was an expedition heading into the forest, mostly to map. Sometime after the War of 1812, the land ownership of the area had transferred to interest regarding animal products and possible logging operations, and so a team from the Howlane Textiles Company was sent in to come up with detailed maps of the area, including wildlife trails and types of trees. Essentially, a full inventory of all the local flora and fauna, along with a detailed map, was commissioned. In the interests of time, the area was divided into four sections, using previously drawn maps. The expedition that took the section the Devil's Door was in consisted of five men. Lanyard Beaumont was the cartographer, Michael Dennis was a woodsman, Nigel Franklin was a biologist, Harold Ludnam was another woodsman, and Stephen Smith was a porter. They were to spend a few weeks detailing the area and left during early March. They were to return no later than May 2nd, 1837. Two of their journals and notes exist and make up the bulk of the expedition's account, Lanyard Beaumont's maps and notes detailing the area and the journal of Nigel Franklin are some of the only written accounts of the incident involving this group. Those notes were not made public until the early 1900s and were only discovered when Howlane Textiles went under and their assets were seized and all their records and buildings and holdings were gone through piece by piece to sell at auction to help alleviate the debt the company had incurred. Thankfully, the purchaser of these writings realized the historical significance of them and donated them to a historical society in the region, which in turn ensured they would end up in the hands of a museum. Short of a few newspaper articles highlighting the more gruesome aspects of the story, which I cannot in good consciousness denounce for I am doing the same thing that they did, no real attention was given to the matter, and it was not until the 1960s that their story was brought into the public eye. As for why, I will detail that in a bit. For now, let's focus on the expedition itself. The early notes and journal entries show the expedition got off to a good start. Beaumont's mapping skills were more than adequate, and with the aid of Dennis, who had been born and raised in the area, and Ludnam, the group was making excellent progress. Franklin's notes showed he was extremely pleased with the diversity he was cataloging, and he was excited to share his findings with the scientific community, and to go back when the expedition was done on his own time to study a few species of birds in the area he found particularly interesting. It was not until April 20th that things began to go awry. Much like the expedition led by Edgar Tanner, sudden poor weather was a major factor in things going wrong. 
While snow was not a concern, sudden intense rainfall began the night of April 19th. The written accounts mention the intensity of the rain, but no real concern until the next day when the rain was not letting up and the area of the woods they were in began to flood. By the evening of the 20th, the group knew they had to move to higher ground to avoid having to sleep in flooded conditions. What they thought was a fortunate find proved to be the deciding factor in the majority of the men never returning home. They stumbled upon the same clearing that the previous expedition had found Arthur in. Similarly, when they walked into the clearing, the rain ceased. In Franklin's journal, the following section came from an entry dated April 20th, 1837. Quote, Thank our Heavenly Father. Fortune favors us tonight as we sleep dryly. We came upon a small clearing. It is a surprise we did, as it is oddly placed in such a way that from outside of it, it is not readily apparent. Upon entering this clearing, the rain let up immediately. In what seemed a sign from God himself that we should camp here, the rain continued outside the clearing, but inside it was oddly free from the torrent. Ludnam and Smith both seemed to be disturbed by this coincidence, and Beaumont is neutral on the matter. Dennis, however, had to be persuaded to stay in it, and I had to promise him my share of bacon for the next two days for him to agree to help set up camp inside of it. He speaks of evil in the land and the stories of the natives of the region about avoiding places like this, but I am quite certain this shows our luck has changed for the better from yesterday, and see this as nothing but worthy of celebration. The two trees in the clearing are also marvelous specimens, and I can barely contain my excitement enough this evening to be able to rest, as I wish to begin inspecting them immediately. Were it not for the inevitable dissension of night, I would be doing detailed sketches of them both this very instant. End quote. This was the last journal entry of his. The only remaining record of the next several days comes directly from Stephen Smith himself, the porter. He exited Terence Woods on April 30th, 1837, dehydrated, starving, sleep-deprived, and according to reports, delirious. He was interviewed both by local authorities, but more heavily by Howling Textile employees. His account is the only known one of the incident itself. According to Smith, the 21st of April, they awoke to find that the storm around them had intensified, with copious amounts of thunder and lightning racking the surrounding forest. But still, the clearing itself remained dry and shielded from the elements. He said that both Dennis and Ludnam, the former being extremely uneasy about the entire situation, decided to go off into the surrounding woods, braving the weather, to see if they could find some firewood and more food, though he suspected they only left the clearing to keep away from it rather than their stated reasons. Smith stayed in the tent, also uneasy about the situation. Beaumont started the day off by sketching the area and adding to his maps, while Franklin approached the trees to study them further. Smith says he'd been in the tent the whole morning, and it was likely a little later than noon when he heard screams. He left the tent to see both Ludnam and Dennis had returned and were now nearer the trees in the clearing, screaming for Beaumont to stop. Smith said he couldn't completely make out what was happening, that he did see Franklin's body near Beaumont, who was standing almost directly between the two trees. Quote, His face was blank. I mean, he was smiling, but there wasn't any emotion behind it. I'm not a religious man, but he looked like his soul had been taken from him. End quote. Ludnam and Dennis eventually tackled and subdued and tied up Beaumont, who remained silent the entire encounter. After that was done, stock was taken, and the three men still retaining their faculties put together the following. At some point during the morning, it appeared that Franklin approached Beaumont while he was studying the trees, and Beaumont, with no previously stated reason, had taken Franklin's steel-nibbed writing utensil and had repeatedly stabbed Franklin in the face and neck, killing him. When questioned as to how Smith hadn't heard the altercation, he stated that the only noise he could hear in the clearing that morning was the sounds of the storm in the nearby area, and that he wasn't even sure Franklin had screamed. He said that he had 
out of morbid curiosity, examined the body, and that there were no wounds anywhere but the face and neck, leading the authorities to conclude the man hadn't defended himself at all. For the most part, Beaumont refused to speak at all and maintained a soulless smile, but at some point during the several hours that Dennis and Ludlum had questioned him, off and on, he'd given up a singular response as to why he had killed Franklin. Quote, he wanted me to, end quote. Whether this was referring to Franklin himself or some delusions of Beaumont, we can't possibly know. That evening, after double-checking Beaumont's restraints, Dennis and Ludnam informed Smith that they would be leaving as soon as the weather permitted. That night, Smith awoke to the sounds of Dennis screaming. He exited the tent to see Dennis being strangled by a now-freed Beaumont, a surprising feat considering Dennis was a well-renowned woodsman who'd hunted and killed numerous large animals, including bears, and was a large-statured man himself, standing just above six feet tall. Beaumont, in contrast, was not even five foot seven, and had been described by others who knew him as pallid and fairly weak. However, Beaumont managed to snap Dennis's neck before Smith and Ludnam could reach the pair. Smith said that during the entire murder, Beaumont had not stopped smiling. While Smith looked for more rope to restrain Beaumont again, he heard a noise he described as, quote, a sickening thud, end quote, and turned back to see Ludnam had stabbed Beaumont in the back with his large knife. Beaumont dropped to his knees before reaching behind himself to remove the knife, and while he was doing this, still smiling, Ludnam pushed him to the ground and began to beat Beaumont mercilessly. Before Smith could reach them, Beaumont was dead, and no more than a pulp above the neck. Ludnam continued to beat him, and Smith recalled later that he could see Ludnam's hands beginning to crack open from the sheer force he was using to beat Beaumont's corpse. Smith called for Ludnam to stop, but Ludnam refused, saying something about making sure he was dead. Smith, in a panic, hurried back to the tent to gather his pack and some supplies and the maps and papers of Franklin and Beaumont, intending to leave as soon as possible. Upon gathering these things together, he left the tent again to see Ludnam still bashing Beaumont's corpse, except now he could see Ludnam smiling as well. Smith fled into the woods and stated that he didn't sleep for three days, spending the entire time walking or running. He stated it was a near miracle that he eventually exited the woods and was found by a local who helped him return to civilization, where he made a full physical recovery. Mentally, though, Smith was never right again. He reported nightmares constantly and was eventually committed to an asylum where his madness slowly deepened. He died of pneumonia in 1840. This account made the rounds in the 1960s when a pair of hikers, a couple, Lawrence Henn and his girlfriend Maria Del Mar, went missing in the woods. Their last reported sighting was near where the Devil's Door is thought to be. While their bodies were never recovered and no one knows their fate, because of their disappearance, a reporter uncovered the records regarding the expedition from Howling Textile, and so the story became sensationalized and popular again as a possible supernatural explanation for the missing couple. At some point between 1960 and 1980, a fire watchtower was constructed in the area and now the public isn't allowed on certain trails, all of which are near where the Devil's Door supposedly resides. And National Park Rangers seem very intent on ensuring those trails stay empty and regularly patrol the area. Were the recorded incidents in that area just the nature of man becoming violent when isolated from society, when the pressures of survival become too much? Was it psychosis? Perhaps some other form of illness or a contagion relating to the fairly unique flora in the area? Is it supernatural or paranormal entities compelling people to become violent? Are the trees in that clearing a portal to the underworld? No one can really say. But if I were you, 
I wouldn't visit Terrence Woods if I didn't have to, and I certainly wouldn't ever go into that clearing. Whatever it was that caused the deaths of several people and the possible disappearance of two more near the Devil's Door, it will likely just remain a strange occurrence. <laughs>